Welcome to Politics in Question, the podcast where we ask the big questions about how our political institutions are failing and how we should go about fixing them. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America, and I'm here on May 22nd, 2023, and all, all the news is about the debt ceiling. And it seems kind of crazy to me that there's a non-trivial chance that the U.S. defaults on its debt, but I also kind of understand how the perverse and misaligned incentives of our political system might take us to this point and perhaps even past it. So today we're going to bring a political theory lens to this question, and I actually think this will be... In quite enlightening because I think some of how we're understanding this has to do with a a failure of how we understand democratic representation. And uh, so I'm delighted to have as our guest, Lisa Jane Dish. Lisa is a professor in the political science department at the University of Michigan, and she is the author of several books, including one of my favorite books, The Tyranny of the Two-Party System, and more recently, the excellent and thought-provoking Making Constituencies, Representation as Mobilization in Mass Democracy. So welcome to the podcast, Lisa. It's such a great pleasure to have you on. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here. I'm delighted to speak with you. And thank you for those kind words about my work. (laughs) Well, it's great and thoughtful stuff. So let's get into it. Your recent book, Making Constituencies, is a book that very directly asks readers to change how they think about representation. Now, I, I think most people would have a sense that there's some kind of crisis of representation going on in U.S. democracy right now, in the sense that I think a lot of people look at what's happening in Washington and state capitals and say, I don't see myself represented here. I'm not fighting about the debt ceiling or I'm not, this is not my top concern. Uh, and where are the issues that I care about? Who's looking out for me? Isn't everybody just looking out for themselves? So I think there's one way to think about it is that, yeah, people, uh, most people aren't really well represented descriptively, policy wise. And there's a lot of issues where public opinion is overwhelmingly in favor of a policy, and yet there's no action on that policy, or lawmakers are actually affirmatively moving against it. And another way to think about it is that maybe we don't have the right expectations for what it means to be represented. There's a, a sort of simplistic populist view that says government works for us. Uh, we should all get exactly what we want. But maybe in a democracy, sometimes we shouldn't get what we want. So how should we think about the crisis of representation in America today? Is it a real crisis or is it a crisis in our minds? Do we need a new way of thinking about it? I do think it's a real crisis. It's not just in our minds, but I also think we need a new way of thinking about it. And I think that in our, we need to remember that this is a representative democracy. It is not rule of the people. And in a representative democracy, we need to recognize that representatives aren't meant to be delegates. They're not just spokespersons or mouthpieces for us. 
And most importantly, they do not or they are not supposed to reflect the very familiar terrain of social groups and their immediate and sometimes fairly parochial demands. So we have this concept of responsiveness that is that that comes naturally to all of us when we think about representative democracy. And I would not dismiss it altogether, but it is important not to equate responsiveness with your representative doing exactly what you want. And I want to be clear here and make a point about creativity and control. So representative democracy means nothing if constituents exert no form of control over the representatives who speak in their names. But democracy also means nothing if political representation simply reflects the most conventional power relations, especially those that wealth and social connections fix in place. We expect some creativity out of representative government. So the language that you have here is is creativity, which I think is something that... that we have a hard time uh, asking for, right? There's sort of, it feels like there's very much this binary, either either I get what I want out of government or government is not representing me. But creativity is kind of, it's it's like a generative or emergent property that, that comes out of the process of people saying, these are my concerns, these are the things that I think government should be doing and lawmakers listening to that. Is that is that fair? It's fair. And these are my concerns is always a good thing to say. These are my concerns and here's my solution is usually not helpful because I usually don't know enough about things that have been tried, things that are in motion already and things that come into stalemates. So very often when I give you my concern and my solution, my solution is going to bang us right into a stalemate. And so what I mean by creativity is both problem-solving creativity, but it's also creativity in constituency making. I think that we ought to expect elected representatives, party leaders, and advocacy groups to build unfamiliar coalitions because that's the only way that we break through the log jams that keep us from solving our most challenging problems, as you mentioned in the in your opening, and also that enable us to come up with the third path or even the 36th path, but it's not the either or path. Right. So so the log jam is comes from just, you know, my way or right. nothing. Right. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that I think comes down to this constant electioneering that's in yeah. our politics mm-hmm. and that that we're, we're on this hamster wheel of everything is about the next election and i i, I want to bring that to to the sort of ongoing uh, debate about strategy particularly within the democratic party and you know thinking ahead to the of course you know we're on the hamster wheel so we're already it's a year and a half away and yet we're already thinking about 2024 and a question of, well, okay, you know, it's another democracy emergency. So how do Democrats win? And you know, b- broadly, uh, there's kind of two camps in the Democratic, what should Democrats do? Endless 
firing squad debate, you know, one being the, the so-called populists who would say something like this, well, Democrats should just poll and poll and poll to find the issues that resonate most with voters, particularly those who are in swing states and swing constituencies, and they should just talk about those issues and then talk about them again. So this is how you wind up with president talking about issues like junk fees and like hotel resort fees. And I don't know, I mean, I'm certainly, I don't like paying extra, but I'm not sure that's the most important issue that our society is facing right now. And, you know, then there's another camp that says, well, look, what is the point of being a political leader if you can't focus attention on the most important issues? And given that Political leaders have some capacity to move public opinion, and maybe there are historic issues, generational issues that we have to deal with. Shouldn't shouldn't our political leaders use the election campaign to focus uh, our our attention on on those questions? Now, obviously, I'm oversimplifying the debate quite a bit, and of course, we have to oversimplify. But how do you think about this? question. I mean, how, how much should parties and politicians be probing the ins and outs of polls to find the issues that will resonate with such and such swing group in such and such swing states, say Michigan, and versus kind of shaping using elections to offer a vision of a good and just society? I love this question. So both of these camps have their dangers. You know, the popularist risks governing by slogan and pet peeve. And the leadership model risks getting out of touch with the real quality of life issues that people really struggle and that get in the way of transformations uh, that those of us on the left would like to see regarding action on the climate crisis or the housing crisis that you know affects so many people. So what should representatives do? Well, you have to use elections and policymaking campaigns because we campaign around both. We campaign to get elected and then we campaign to promote policies. And we, we need to use those to change the conversation. And the way you change the conversation in part is by changing who's in it and how they align themselves, who they see as their allies and opponents. And, you know, I'm going to reach back for a historical example. A great example is the Depression era to the mid-20th century Democratic Party. So historically, of course, the Democratic Party wasn't always liberal. And liberalism in the U.S. did not always mean civil rights plus workers' rights plus government action and government spending to achieve both. And these issues actually started coming together long before many of us think that they did. We tend to think of the 1960s as when racial and economic liberalism began to get linked. But there's a wonderful book by Eric Schickler called Racial Realignment that describes how these issues started to come together, the civil rights plus workers' rights and government spending and action to achieve both, began to come together from the 1930s in the earliest days of the New Deal up to 1965. And how that happened was that state party politicians and union activists transformed the constituency base of the Democratic Party. They forged what was then an unlikely coalition between civil rights activists and the industrial unions or the CIO. And what came out of that was new conversations and respectful conversations 
about our principles and how these two groups could be stronger together than they were apart. And that influenced what the party's platforms and policy agendas were. And it is really important today on the issues that are really hurting us, you know, really threatening our survival, actually, to have conversations about our principles that actively include those who are systematically marginalized. So if we're talking about affordable housing, we need to be talking not only to our residents and our voters, but those who would like to be residents but can't afford to live here. And we need to be thinking about what are our options. And then as representatives, we have to take responsibility and exercise courage in presenting realistic options, not clickbait options that are fun because they sound like I'm going to solve, you know, your, your biggest pet peeve, or I'm going to give you this big dramatic agenda that's going to change everything. Mostly, I'm probably going to give you something boring that might involve negotiating with someone that you think is an enemy, like your least favorite energy company, but that actually might make us progress towards new solutions around energy sources or new, uh, obviously with a different partner, new solutions around affordable housing. Um, and then you've got to name and describe what those, name those options and describe what they are going to deliver in ways that come back to the things that people tell you is most important to them. So yes, you tap the kinds of problems that people give you. Like if they say they feel disempowered, make sure that the solution that you're presenting has a piece of empowerment for them that is believable. It often takes courage to present what is an actual realizable option because that isn't going to be the dramatic change and it isn't going to be the big slogan. And people sometimes feel, you know, people are rallied by big slogans and they are disappointed by policy proposals that look like they aren't going to go all the way or not fast enough. You mean there's no one weird trick to solve I everything? I so am sorry to say that there isn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you know, that that was going to be the, the clickbait Twitter headline for, for this podcast. <laughs> Maybe I'll, I'll still do it and, and then, then overpromise. But I actually want to follow up on this, this overpromising point that you made, because I think that so much of our politics does involve this cycle of overpromising, and then people get disappointed. And so much of it also seems to involve uh, this reverse overpromising in a sense that the threat of the other side winning will be so destructive that everything you hold dear will evaporate. Uh, so it seems like to, to get from where we are, which is a politics of constant overpromising and threats and disappointment and fear to where you want us to go would require, say, a, a a total rethinking of how we how we think about the process of doing politics. Well, <laughs> that's a that's a good point. We can certainly get into rethinking about some of the ways we do our party politics because I know that that's part of what's on your mind and also what you've written about. And it also 
It can also involve a change of scale. I think it's really easy to get into these things that look like existential conflicts, you know, do or die, either we win or the other side will win and destroy our way of life. It's easy to get to that on the scale of national politics. And uh, I think that a lot of local politics lends itself to a more thoughtful, more realistic, more fully informed approach to politics that's really grounded in policy solutions that are meant to solve problems and not just excite people and, you know, get them, you know, angry. And so I think scaling down um, is important. And, and it's not only important for the information quality of politics, but it's also important because a lot of the huge threats that we face um, have infrastructure and zoning solutions or unzoning solutions at the local level, because that's how many of them got going. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And I, I, I think part of the problem is is precisely this sense that when people think about national politics, things seem distant and abstract and people feel like they have no control and they're highly uncertain, which makes people gravitate towards more extreme rhetoric. Mm -hmm. But speaking of local politics, I want to ask <laughs> you about something that, that is, I think, somewhat unique among political science professors is that you are in addition to being a political science professor, you are a local elected official. So how has, and you, you were elected in 2020 first, right? Right. That, yeah. So tell me about why you decided to become a city council member for the city of Ann Arbor, Michigan, and what that how that has changed your own views about representation and, and whether you're putting into practice the, your, your theories of representation? This is such a great question. I decided to run for office in 2019, and I was elected in 2020, because it takes a long time to run as a first-time candidate. And as someone who's been an academic rather than a political, um, you know, really politically engaged in local party politics, I was engaged in policy and I paid attention but I wasn't someone who was shaking hands and donating at fundraisers and all of those kinds of things that have become a regular and delightful part of my life. But I felt that I was very poorly represented by my existing, we have two representatives per ward. And I felt that both representatives that were elected for my ward represented me very poorly and represented everyone I knew who lived in my ward. And I simply did not think that we were on the one hand libertarians and on the other hand people who were afraid of ann arbor becoming a denser city and a city where people rely more on public transportation bike more walk more all of these things that cities are trying to transition toward in order to reduce their carbon footprints and so I decided that I would challenge uh, the incumbent who was up in, in 2020. And I had done canvassing before, both for other candidates and for policy issues. And I love talking to people on their porches because it's just another form of education. And that's what I do in the classroom. But it feels like it's having an immediate consequence when you speak with a voter. 
and when you offer them either a policy alternative or a candidate alternative. And so I, I found that pleasant and I enjoyed it. And I was really, really grateful to be elected and by a, a very, very good percentage of the vote. And since I've been in office, I am more convinced than ever that it is important for people to understand that responsiveness doesn't mean my doing what you told me you wanted. And that it often means offering good reasons for what people perceive to be disappointment. And the good reasons often revolve around trade-offs because so many things that are so important to us are actually competing priorities. So two of the leading issues in this town of Ann Arbor are affordable housing and reaching carbon neutrality. And the voters have enacted, um, they've taxed themselves to provide additional funding for both of those initiatives. And so they are important to important enough to people in the city that they're willing to tax themselves, but they clash. So um, because Michigan, the state of Michigan does not give Ann Arbor the right to require either that new development include a portion of affordable housing or that new development be electric rather than gas powered or fossil gas powered. Every chunk of housing that we build, if there is no way for us to incentivize electric uh, housing, it's setting us back on our climate goals in order to help with our housing goals. And I have navigated those trade-offs on everything I've had to vote for. And, you know, part of the city is disappointed in me when I prioritize sustainability over housing. And the other side is disappointed with me when I prioritize housing over sustainability. And it is what I have learned from city staff. And my experience is that it is all about trade-offs. And that is not an inspiring message <laughs> to communicate to constituents. Right. And is that because the, the two camps have a desire to seek maximalist versions of what they want? And it, we just have a political vocabulary that makes it hard for us not to uh, seek maximalist positions because the whole idea of compromise seems somehow like giving up? Yeah, I mean, I do. I think so. I think we have, we are, as you talk about in your book, for reasons of the way the two-party system is structured, we are in a situation of extremes and that can even hold in a one-party town, which Ann Arbor is a one-party town. So it's not really an issue of Democrats against Republicans. It's an issue of the ways that the priorities that factions of our Democratic Party hold, and they hold to the thing that is most important to them in intense and passionate terms. So I'm, I'm glad you you offered the, the gentle segue <laughs> towards talking about the tyranny of the two-party <laughs> system. Uh, so uh, one of the things that, that I, 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 there's a lot that I loved about your book, but one thing that, that, that was really delightful was 
the the historic argument, uh, both about the the way in which fusion voting used to be a, a vibrant part of the system that allowed some uh, play in the joints with more parties, but also the way in which the idea of a two party system was sort of a construct of mid century political science. So I think a lot of folks you know, often when I talk about oh this is a multi-party, you know, it would be better as a multi-party system. People are like, oh, but the U.S. is naturally a two-party system. Isn't it in the Constitution? So can, can you help us expand our historic imagination and explain why we, so many people think that the U.S. is naturally a two-party system? Yes. So do you think we need to define fusion voting for your yes. Listeners? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. I, I think. I think e even even the wonky. Some people might. Yes. Might uh, be attuned. So political fusion um, was a practice that flourished in the 19th century, and where it exists today, it is also known as cross endorsement or multiple party nomination. And where it exists today, most famously, is in New York City, where you have the enduring presence of the Conservative Party and then um, a newer party called the Working Families Party. And these parties, uh, fusion exists when a single candidate receives the nomination of more than one political party and runs in the general election on more than one ballot line. So what is key here is that a third political party, uh, rather than splitting the vote, against the major political party that it, that it most resembles, partners with that party, but keeps its own distinct ballot line. Um, so it is common to think that the U.S. is naturally a two-party system. It is common to think that that is somehow in the Constitution, but it is nowhere in the Constitution. And in fact, the founders of our republic um, we're not particularly enthusiastic about political parties at all, certainly not as parties with popular bases as we know them today. So it's just silly to think that there's anything constitutional about the two-party system. But there is a belief that two-party politics um, offers stability that multiple party systems do not offer. Then there is also this adage that people who take political science classes learn, which is uh, Duverger's law, which holds that in a single member district first past the post system, that is where you do not need a majority of the vote to win, but where the first across the finish line with whatever percentage of the votes they get takes all, that will naturally end up with um, two-party politics. And this was not true in the 19th century in the U.S., and it's not entirely true today, as I said, in New York. But the most important thing is to remember the rich history of fusion politics in the 19th century, because during that time, when you voted for a political party on a party ticket, instead of on the ballot that we have today, where all of the party candidates are listed on a single ballot, which is called the Australian or the common ballot, at that time, you voted on a party ticket. And so only you saw only the candidates for your party, and you turned that party ticket into the ballot box. And that party ticket was usually printed up by the party itself. And it was often 
printed up on special colored paper so that if the political party during those times had paid you for your vote, as was not uncommon, they could see by the color of the paper that you put into that box once or maybe even twice um, was the color that they had paid for, that they were getting for, they were getting what they, what they paid for. So fusion candidacies were easy and commonplace during the time of the party ticket. Um, sometimes they happened without the voter even knowing that the Democratic Party and, say, the Populist Party listed the same presidential or vice presidential or gubernatorial or Senate candidate, because you only saw the, the, the list of candidates for the, the party that you were voting on. So in the, in the, from the mid to the late 19th century, voters took for granted the presence of active third political parties on the state level and being competitive nationally, but especially were able to control state legislatures. Um, and I have to read this quote from a, a populist historian, John Hicks, because um, he was writing in 1933. And already he was saying that there something peculiarly sacred had developed about two-party competition and he compared the cultural status of two-party competition to the decalogue or the practice of monogamy or the right of the Supreme Court to declare a law of Congress, such that right-minded citizens never question the wisdom of a binary division of political forces, but they see in it a sort of guarantee of good government. So within 30 years, people had forgotten the practice of third-party voting and fusion to them seemed like a strange option. But to third party voters in the 19th century, which was when it was most widely practiced, and it, it, it really gets uh, anti-fusion laws were enacted under the cover of legalizing and regulating the Australian ballot. And they were done in a fairly sly way. Nobody said outright, none, neither of the major parties said outright, we're going to outlaw political fusion because it's a it's competition with us and we don't like it. We just like to have a guaranteed victory. But that's essentially what they did. They enacted um, qualification laws so that third political parties had to qualify for the ballot. And they enacted laws that said that a, a candidate cannot be listed more than one time on the ballot. So if a fusion were to take place, both parties could not get credit for what they brought to the partnership. Only one party, the whole partnership would be subsumed under one party. So the big tent party really originates with the Australian ballot and the regulations that it provided occasion to happen, you know, to, to occur. And uh, one uh, Michigan populist voter said that, oh my God, this anti-fusion legislation, quote, practically disfranchises every citizen who doesn't happen to be a member of the party in power. And he said, they're going to have to waste their votes if they want to vote for third parties. Well, that's what we take for granted today, that a third party vote is a wasted vote. And this populist voter was irate that the system was being reconfigured in order to make that a gospel truth rather than a contingent feature and an effect of a power play by the major political parties. So I want to take this to today when we look at the two-party system and bring this back to the, the debt ceiling conversation that I, I teased at the beginning. Uh, yeah, so 
the way in which so much of the political punditry and commentary is that this is really a zero sum conflict. Uh, it's you know, who's going to back down, who's going to get what, how is this going to affect the status of approval or approval of, of the different folks engaged in this negotiation. And, and I think this uh, ties into what we were talking about before in which we, we, we don't have a, a good sense of trade-offs and compromise. It's you know, either my side gets what they what it wants or my side loses. Uh, so I as a kind of wrapping up question here, I, I want to ask you, what do you think that the different actors, Republicans, Democrats, are thinking about in terms of their constituencies, in terms of who they are representing, and in how they see conflict and uh, a kind of you know my side wins versus your side loses in this fight and what is a different way that we could think about representation and does it require changing the party system well i think for the party out of power your win that is to say you the dominant party your win is my loss and so the party out of power has, from its perspective, everything to gain by making the party in power look ineffectual or bad. So it's fundamentally zero sum. It is fundamentally zero sum, especially for the party out of power. And these victories are so close now in American politics, like the seats, the way the the you know the legislatures are divided. And we are so polarized, as you have argued, and we are so frozen in place in our polarization that it is really difficult and it feels costly politically to find and acknowledge common ground. And it would, that was different when there were moderate Democrats and moderate Republicans. <laughs> there was a weight towards compromise. Um, and that was, you know, you've referred to that as a four-party system, which I think is really illuminating for people. So I do not honestly know how we get out of this because you get stuck in patterns. And the usual way of disrupting patterns involved political realignment. And I don't know if our system can do political realignment anymore, because part of it involves, again, what I was talking about with the New Deal, it, it, it does involve remaking the constituency bases. And third political parties have been helpful in that, as have been, you know, institutions like unions and other advocacy groups and civil society organizations. And I don't know where we are with that. But I have certainly thought about fusion as one possibility, fusion politics, its relegalization, as offering a place for moderates to go and offering an incentive for political parties to run moderate candidates. And I think it, there's probably more of an incentive right now. Well, I shouldn't say this, but my instinct is that there's more of an incentive for Democrats to run moderate candidates because that appears to be the way 
you know, reclaimed majorities. For example, in Michigan, we have the governorship, the Senate, and the House of Representatives for the first time in decades. And part of that is the success in running moderate Democratic candidates. Those candidates would be even stronger if they could run in partnership with a second ballot line that would give moderate Republicans an opportunity to vote for them without having to vote Democratic. Some of those moderate Republicans might be voting for them on the Democratic ballot line, but I bet you'd get more if they could run in partnership with a moderate third party where both parties would get a tally of their contribution to the partnership. Ranked choice voting is also another possibility because it's a very different approach than fusion because it's not party-centered, it's candidate-centered, but it too rewards behavior that doesn't present the voters with an either or choice because you're looking for you're looking to be the second choice of an opponent's first choice voters in ranked choice voting so you campaign to your base and you campaign to be the second choice of an opponent and that that means that you don't want to say things like your win is my loss but rather we have x in common right so it seems like the challenge here is that you described it as a log jam. Things feel very stuck. But at the same time, there's a lot of potential to find some new combinations if there were you know, more parties or different voter groups that could be brought in in different ways. And you know, I, I think that that's the, the fundamental challenge is, is that th- things things are so stuck that it's really hard to find that. But at the same time, it might not take all that much if you can find the right leverage point to to because things are the the, the flip side of stuck and and rigid is is brittle, and you know I I I'm hoping I'm gonna ask this final question which you know I, I hope will leave us on a somewhat optimistic point which is you know I I th- and I think I, t- I take from your your recent work is that you you are more optimistic about the future of democracy and the capacity of of citizens than perhaps this conversation has vinced so what's a reason we should be optimistic or what's a reason that you're optimistic that we'll still have a representative democracy for generations to come? (laughs) Well, I'm optimistic for one thing, because I do believe in the power of structural change. Um, I don't think that we get out of the log jams that you were talking about and so eloquently described simply by changing people's beliefs. I think that where people are is in part because of the, the ways that the system encourages them to express themselves politically. And so I I believe that many of our problems are created by structures that were some of them haphazard and some of them deliberate and have created, you know, the inequities that we see ourselves in. I mean, where you put water and how far water pipes extend is a huge issue. And that's about structure and voting, uh, who gets to vote and who doesn't vote. And we're seeing that, you know, who, who is not allowed to vote. So these are structures and they're not about human nature. It's about things that we built and we can rebuild. And I'm also optimistic because I believe people, people generally, and especially younger people, are more engaged than ever. And I I deal with people in the 18 to 21 age group. 
And they are engaged and informed about politics as if their lives depended on it. And I think they do depend on it. And I think they realize that. And they are bringing an energy and attention to politics that in the 80s people brought to Wall Street. <laughs> and I really don't think I'm romanticizing that. So I believe that there's interest and attention. And where there's interest and attention, there can be leadership and education and mobilization for change by advocacy groups and elected representatives. And so that's my optimism. What about yours? The the kids are all right. Um, yeah, I, I I I I've been thinking a lot about the generational shift that's happening as the millennial generation is becoming the dominant generation, and how that is going to force change. I think it is going to be a challenging decade ahead, uh, maybe two decades. But I really do have faith in the next generation. I I, I think they're going to save us. So. This has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This podcast is a partnership between New America and the R Street Institute. Our producer is Elizabeth Lucero, and our audio engineer is Shannon Lynch. The theme music is composed and performed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.